You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Message where I've used the most scripture that I ever have, and I'm not asking you to turn to every passage. We're going to put them all up on the screen, but we're going to go fast. And we're in our third session of our Guided by Truth series, Learning and Deploying Apologetics. We're going to go through today 10, I could have gone through 100, but 10 common objections that you will find out there in the highways and byways of your lives among Jewish people, among non Jews that we need to have answers for. First Peter chapter 3, good Jewish boy, Kepha, in verse 15 says the following. Instead, sanctify Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give an answer. In another translation, it says a reasoned answer. Apologia in Greek. To anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Likewise, Shaul wrote to the Corinthian congregation, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 10 rather, verses 4 and 5. He said, we are tearing down false arguments and every high-minded thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Messiah. So those are the marching instructions for us if we would take it upon ourselves. And so let's do that difficult work that Shaul and Kepha exhort us to do. Let's respond to 10 common objections. Number one, probably the biggest one, the Bible is not reliable. We've all heard that, right? Since the Bible is the main way that we know about faith in Yeshua, those who oppose Messianic Judaism, those who oppose Christianity have been attacking it for as long as we have had it. And these attacks are often very convincing to non-believers and so it's important to have a response. For example, when you speak with Mormons, they're not opposed to the Bible. Their question is reliability. They question the reliability of the Bible. Because what their faith perceives is repeated mistranslations of the Bible over time. Seven reasons that you and I can have confidence in the Bible today. Number one, fulfilled prophecy. There are literally hundreds of specific prophecies in the Bible that have been fulfilled often hundreds of years later. Yeshua fulfilled over 300 Tanakh prophecies at his first coming. We can have confidence in the Bible because of fulfilled prophecy. Number two, we can have confidence in the Bible due to historical accuracy as well. The Bible speaks of real people, right? Real places, real events. And it does so, my friends, with extreme accuracy. Archaeology and the Dead Sea Scrolls continue to affirm the historical accuracy of the scriptures, which has resulted in biblical translations actually becoming better in recent years. Number three, we can have confidence in the scriptures due to scientific accuracy. We've talked about that in the first couple of sessions. The Bible often speaks of truths that were not discovered uh, by science until many years later. Examples include the roundness of the earth, Isaiah 40, 22, although this is being challenged today. The hydrologic cycle, Ecclesiastes 1, 7, the vast 
number of stars, Jeremiah 33, 22. Entropy, in other words, gradual decline into disorder, Psalm 102, verses 24 and 25. The importance of blood in living things, science has caught up to that, Leviticus 17, 11. Atmospheric circulation, Ecclesiastes 1, 6. Gravitational field, Job 26, 7. Science is catching up to what the scriptures have already put out there for us. Number four, we can have confidence in the Bible that it's reliable because of its indestructibility. Despite the numerous attempts throughout all ages, the Bible still remains the best-selling and most read book in the world. Number five, its unique structure, despite being written by 39 different authors from multiple walks of life over an approximate 1,500-year span, the Bible, with its various types of documents, is remarkably consistent and cohesive in its message in terms of even the variances of the copies that we have today. Do we believe that our copy reliably holds the foundational message of Adonai's character, truth, and love? For me, the answer is a resounding yes. Number six, it's universal influence. The Bible is easily the most influential book in history, and it's the foundation of all of our world's great legal documents. It has inspired thousands of works of art, including paintings, statues, music, books, and architecture. And finally, number seven, that we can have confidence in the Bible. No other piece of literature has had such an impact on so many people. In addition to leading people to salvation, the Bible has inspired millions of people throughout the years to do, to do amazing things for his glory. And we're going to focus on that next Shabbat, this particular objection. But let's move on. We hear it out there in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and our spheres. Well, Yeshua, he never existed. How many of you heard that? He never existed. Well, let me ask the question. Did Alexander the Great exist? You see, the best sources that we have are the historiography of Arian and Plutarch, 400 plus years after Alexander's death. Around 356 is when he lived. Did the biblical prophet Elijah exist? Well, best sources we have is the prophet Jeremiah, author of 1 and 2 Kings, according to the Talmud. 250 plus years after Elijah and the source's authorship is attested to a thousand years after Jeremiah's lifetime. What are the sources for Yeshua? Well, early Pauline creeds that we have in scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians chapter 2, there's some creeds in there from Paul. We have first century biographies, right? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have first century ancient historiography, the book of Acts. We have eyewitnesses of Yeshua's disciples, Paul being one. We have eyewitnesses of the disciples of the disciples of Yeshua, Polycarp, Clement of Rome, Papias, etc. We have first century CE Jewish historian Josephus. We have second century CE Greek satirist Lucian of Samosata. We have first century CE Syrian philosopher Mara Barsepion. We have second century CE Roman historian Tacitus. We have second CE century, uh, CE Roman governor Pliny the Younger. Second CE Roman writer and lawyer Suetonius. According to apologist Dr. Gary Habermas, there are 42 sources which includes nine of those being secular sources that mention Yeshua within 150 years of his time. So I ask you, are we consistent? Objection number three, we hear oftentimes, well, Yeshua was just a man, right? One of the central claims of our messianic faith is that unlike Muhammad, unlike Buddha, 
Yeshua was not an ordinary man. Many skeptics have argued that Yeshua was a, a good moral teacher, but certainly not God. And so Messianic Judaism and Christianity are no better or truer than any other faith structure, they say. C.S. Lewis argued that given the certainty of the Messiah Yeshua's existence and given what the Bible tells us about Yeshua, there are only three options. And known, we all know this. It's known as his trilemma, C.S. Lewis's trilemma for what we can choose to believe about Yeshua. Number one, that he was a lunatic. Since Yeshua clearly claimed to be God and suffered and died a painful death for refusing to recant, that if Yeshua was not actually God, then he must have been mentally ill. We cannot trust the teachings or the testimony of a man who is mentally ill. And so if Yeshua was indeed a lunatic, he certainly cannot be considered a great moral teacher then. Or he was a liar. Since Yeshua clearly and repeatedly referred to himself as God, if he was not in fact God... And if he was not, in fact, mentally ill, then he must have been a liar. And even more, he would have had to be a blasphemer then of the highest order. In any case, someone who is a liar and a blasphemer of the highest order certainly cannot be considered a great moral teacher. Or the other third leg of the trilemma is Lord. He must be Lord. You see, if you reject the first two options, then the only other option is to accept Yeshua is, in fact, God. And if this is true, we must fall down and worship him. Not merely as a great moral teacher, but as God. And so the reason that people will affirm that Yeshua as a great moral teacher, even while they reject him as God, as Lord, is because his life and his teachings are clearly not those of a lunatic. They're not those of a liar. However, as C.S. Lewis demonstrates, this is simply not an option. The truth of Yeshua's life and the truth of his resurrection demonstrate clearly that he is Lord. Well, you Messianic Jews, you're idolaters because you worship a man as God, they say. Is it possible for God to manifest himself, his glory in physical form? Go with me in the Torah to Exodus chapter 24. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadav and Avihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. They saw the God of Israel... And under his feet was something like a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the very heavens. Now go to the prior chapter, 23. Behold, verse 20, I am sending an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you into the place that I have prepared. Watch for him and listen to his voice. Do not rebel against him because he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Here's another physical manifestation of God in the Torah. This angel has God's name in him. This angel has the authority to forgive sin. It was a Jewish belief that God had, has physically revealed himself in physical form and can be worshipped. Dr. Benjamin Sommer, pro professor of ancient Semitic languages and Bible at the Jewish Theological Seminary stated this, quote, No Jew sensitive to Judaism's own classical sources, however, can fault the theological model Christianity employs when it avows belief in a God who has an earthly body as well as a Holy Spirit manifestation. For that model, we have seen, is a perfectly Jewish one. Well, Yeshua can't be the only way to heaven, they say. Oprah Winfrey, yeah, I just quoted her in a scripture message. 
She once said on her show that, quote, Jesus can't be the only way to heaven. He just can't be. The world often thinks this way because they consider the exclusive claims of messianic faith to be narrow, to be bigoted, to be arrogant. They prefer to believe what? That all roads lead to heaven. I would caution those folks who believe that to read John chapter 14, verse 6. Yeshua said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what about Acts chapter 4, verse 12? The claims of the Bible that Yeshua can be the only way to heaven. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The claims of other religions contradict the Bible. The impossibility of then contradictory claims being true, it's an impossibility. Logic and common sense tell us that two contradictory claims cannot be true, no matter how much we would like them to be. If we're going to claim that heaven's a real place, there can only be one valid way to get there. Now, I taught these things several years ago to a class at the King's University, and one of the students there had just an outstanding discussion board post on this. I wanted to read you his response to this on Yeshua can't be the only way to heaven. He said, uh, this is Aaron Mendez, who went on to become a Messianic congregational leader in upstate New York. He says, are all people born through the same process? Yes. Even if a person was born through surrogacy, the process of a sperm cell entering an egg cell is still the same. Does every die? Yes. There's no way around it. Everyone ages. There are physical and biological absolutes that show human life goes in only one direction and in through one process or way in that direction. There's no way around that reality. That doesn't mean that authentic messianic faith is exclusive. On the contrary, it is inclusive because God has given through Yeshua an invitation to everyone. However, by neglecting and persisting in rejecting Messiah's claim, John 14, 6... One positions oneself exclusively out of the salvific mercies of God through Yeshua. Yeshua can only be the way because to tolerate any other faith would be contradictory inasmuch as the claims of Islam that say that Jesus didn't die on the cross or the Talmud speaking of Yeshua burning in hell are contradicting what the apostolic writings say about him dying and being resurrected. Since there is only one God and Yeshua is within the unique identity of this one God, and then there is only one way, and he is that way to God. Why believe there are many paths to the God of Israel if he has made his will, word, and way known through the person of Yeshua of Nazareth? Not only that, but considering how many messianic prophecies there are regarding God's Messiah, there leaves no room for any other person or path other than that prescribed by and through Yeshua. Well, a loving God then would not send people to hell. Objection number six. And many people, including many of us, struggle with the idea of hell. It seems to some people that God, who is perfectly loving, would not send anyone to hell. And so in light of this, I think it's essential for us to explain quickly the doctrine of hell. Hell is a biblical certainty. Mark chapter 9, we find in verse 47. If your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. 
It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God than one eye, with one eye than having two eyes to be thrown into Gehenna, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is a biblical certainty. Revelation chapter 20 in verse 11 through 15 says this. I'm challenging the guys in the back to go quick. Then I saw a great white throne and the one seated on it. And the earth and heaven fled from his presence, but no place was found for him. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, Sefer HaChaim, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to that which was written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Sheol gave up the dead in them. Then they were each judged, each one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Sheol were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Hell is a biblical certainty, my friends. But hell is also morally justified. Why? Adonai is a just God. The Torah tells us, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, He is the rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Adonai is a just God. And everyone has sinned as well, right? There is none righteous, Romans 3.10 says. There is no not one. Verse 23, Romans 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Matthew 5.21, you have heard Yeshua said that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever calls his brother you good for nothing will be brought before the Sanhedrin. Whoever says fool incurs the penalty of burning in the fire of Gehenna. Well, we know sin has a penalty, right? The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. We've all been given a fair chance to escape that punishment, hell. For God did not send John 3, 17, his son into the world, what? To condemn the world, but what? That the world through him might be saved. Hell is morally justified, but hell is also logically necessary. If there is no hell, think about this for a moment. If there is no hell, what did Messiah come to save us from? Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and sin draws its power from the Torah. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Because Adonai is a God of justice, he must punish our sin. He said to the prophet Habakkuk, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil, he says to God, and cannot look on wickedness. Because Adonai is a God of love, he punished his son instead, Paul said, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us, toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. Think about this, my friends. Slow it down in your mind. The amazing thing is not that a loving God would send anyone to hell, but that a just God would allow anyone to escape it. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Another student commented on this objection in one of the discussion boards. His name is Sean. said this. When I'm confronted with this objection, I typically say something to the extent that God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. It's our sin and rebellion towards God that sends us to hell. I then talk about divine judgment and how God is a just judge. In the Bible, when people were oppressed and heard that God would execute judgment, they would go from sadness to hope. 
I would talk about Psalm 96 and 98. Both of these chapters talk about the results of God's judgment on earth with Psalm 98 ending by saying, quote, let them sing before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and people with equity. The result of a righteous judge doesn't bring one to despondency from hope, but rather hope from despondency. Psalm 98 is the chapter that Sir Isaac Watts wrote his famous hymn, Joy to the World. Righteous judgment brings joy to the world. Nowhere in Revelation do we read people uttering, God, you are not fair. He's a fair God that came to seek and save that which was lost. It is an individual's rejection of, that, of this fairness that sends them to hell. Well, people are basically good, they say. You've heard that one. I know you've heard that one. And many people would respond to the argument for hell by saying, if hell does exist, it's only for the bad people. It's for Adolf Hitler. Maybe everybody sins a little bit, but people, they say, are basically good, and a just God wouldn't give the same punishment to my friendly atheist neighbors as he would to Adolf Hitler. Here's my response. People are not basically good. Each year, an average of 500,000 people are murdered. Millions of rapes occur every year. Hundreds of thousands still die every year in wars around the world. Terrorism kills thousands every year. Over 80 million people were killed in the last century by Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, and Pol Pot. You remember that, that Cambodian genocide combined. This would not have been possible without the cooperation, though, and inaction of others as well. But people keep their true nature under wraps. When things get bad, people's true nature, though, comes out, doesn't it? There was a couple of studies I want to remind you of. Maybe you've read these in class when you were in school, but there was a, an electrocution study done by Stanley, Stanley Milgram. He was a psychologist who designed an experiment back in 1961 to examine the degree to which people would comply with immoral, immoral commands from authority. So a teacher who was the experimental subject in this case, a teacher and a learner who was, the learner was a friend of the teacher, a friend of the experimenter, were supposedly examining the effects of punishment, electric shock, on learning. And so the learner was strapped to a chair on the other side of a barrier, but within hearing distance. The teacher was instructed to read a list to the subject of two word pairs and ask the hearer to repeat them back to him. So if the learner answered correctly, then they moved on to the next set of words. If the answer was not correct, the teacher was supposed to shock the learner beginning at 15 volts. Now, the simulated shock generator consisted of 30 switches of 15-volt increments up to 450 volts, along with a rating ranging from slight shock to danger, severe shock. The final, actually, two switches, 425 and 450 volts, were labeled XXX. So the teacher was instructed automatically increase the shock setting every time the learner missed that two-word pair in the list. And to add some authenticity to the shock generator, to the teacher, the teacher was then given a real shock from a 45-volt battery prior to the start of the experiment. And so 
No experimental subject, no teacher in the study hesitated to give shocks up to 300 volts. 26 of the 40 subjects of the 40 teachers continued to shock the learner up to the maximum setting of 450 volts. And although Dr. Milgram's colleagues had predicted at the beginning of the study that only 3% of subjects, only 3% of teachers would continue to the maximum voltage, 65% actually did so, even though they believed that the shocks they had given were extremely painful. People keep their true nature under wraps. Let's talk about another experiment about a decade later, Zimbardo's Stanford prison experiment. You may have heard of this one as well, following the Attica and the other prison riots, right? 1970, early 70s. Psychologist Philip Zimbardo, 1971, embarked on an examination of a, the effect of simulated prison conditions on normal human subjects. In this study, four comparable groups of students were randomly assigned to either be guards or prisoners in Stanford University's simulated prison. But to make the experiment seem a little more real, those assigned to be prisoners were arrested by the Stanford Police Department. They were cuffed and booked before being turned over to the Stanford jail. Within a day, there were conflicts. <laughs> Within a day, between the prisoners, quote, prisoners, and the guards, which resulted in the beginning of harsh treatment of the prisoners. Some of the troublemakers were put into solitary confinement or stripped of their clothing and made to sleep on the floor. The prisoners eventually became compliant, even though they could quit the experiment at any time. The treatment by the guards, quote-unquote guards, continued to deteriorate to the point that the experiment had to be ended on day six. None of the, quote, guards protested the evil actions of their co-workers. Well, a merciful God, Joel, wouldn't allow suffering. Objection number eight on your sheets. Many have argued through the years that the existence of evil proves that God does not exist. Or at least prove that he's not how believers perceive him to be. Nobel laureate famous atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell famously called this the problem of evil. Here's one of his famous quotes. You probably heard this. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence or from what source then is evil? Is he neither able nor willing, then why call him God? Messianic responses to this problem of evil are called theodicies. They usually fall into a couple of main categories. They're the greater good theodicies which explain that God allows evil to, in order to achieve his greater purposes. Now these purposes may include things like allowing us to see good, Growing us in his sanctification, growing us in his grace, punishment for original sin, revealing his perfect love and justice and sending Yeshua to die on the tree of sacrifice. And in fact, Paul says, and we know that what all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But there are also other theodicies, other answers of free will. Um, evil exists because mankind freely chooses to sin. And so that position argues that God gave us as mankind moral agency so that we could genuinely love him. 
However, this moral agency also allows us, on the other hand, to commit evil. And while God could stop that, he could stop evil, this would require him to then restrain our moral agency, which would also prevent us from genuinely seeking him and loving him. Paul wrote in Acts 17, verse 26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. That's free will. Well, if God is so good and sovereign, why does evil exist? Evil exists because of the fall, right? Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, Romans 5, 12. Evil exists because you and I choose to sin. The prophet Ezekiel says, yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear you, Israelites, is my way unjust, the Lord says. Is it not your ways that are unjust? Evil exists, or God did do something, though, about sin. We know he sent his son, right? Isaiah 53, classic, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. God did something about sin. God's ultimate goodness will be seen in heaven. Quote, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Hallelujah. Final student who wrote on this particular objection uh, in one of my classes, his name's Joe, said the free will theodicy arguments present a chance to help a person see that being a moral creature of necessity means choosing between right and wrong. We had a cat skin alive a bunny rabbit and bring it into our house to show us his prize. We did not call the local cat police and report a crime. The cat is not a creature capable of making a moral choice, but if a person did it to another human, it would be a crime. The fact of evil is an opportunity to show a fatal flaw in human nature. Recently, I have the following. I've followed the situation in Poland with the new law about the Holocaust and asserting Polish responsibility for the Shoah. I remember studying Daniel Goldhagen, in particular his book, Hitler's Willing Executioners, where he showed irrefutable evidence that the participation of the ordinary citizen was necessary for the Holocaust to happen. This is exactly what Poland is now trying to deny. What man asks why does God not stop evil? Is he calling for another flood for the judgments of the revelation to commence? Evil, my friends, is the result of the imago Dei, or in Hebrew, the Tselem Elohim, the image of God being corrupted within humanity. The existence of evil points to a moral standard of good, which is fully embodied in Adonai in his goodness. Why does God allow evil? So that we can experience relationship and love that requires choice. As we round third base in this study this morning, maybe you've heard this one, maybe even from your family. Believers are hypocrites. and Many people argue that they, like Yeshua, they like him. They're attracted to him. But they don't like his followers. Implying that they would accept Yeshua if not for all these nasty disciples. And this attitude is actually summed up by Indian activist Mahatma Gandhi. Yes, I quote Gandhi in my 
message, and so I'm going to get some emails on that. When he said this, quote, I love your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Response. Followers of Yeshua are indeed hypocrites, but so is everyone else. Yeshua followers, we are people. And like all people, we are sinners. Everyone portrays himself in a manner that is not consistent with their true nature. Romans 2, 3 says, do you, do you think that you, a mere man, passing judgment on others who do such things, yet doing them yourself will escape the judgment of God? Ooh, that hurts. Many claim that religion or religious people are the causes of most of the wars and suffering. And yet over again, as I mentioned, over 80 million people were killed in the 20th century by totalitarian regimes that specifically denied God. All right? Yeshua thought, we are not perfect. We're just forgiven. God offers people Messiah. He doesn't offer them believers. If people understood who Yeshua really was, it makes sense why his followers are so unlike him. The failure of us as believers demonstrates that God can forgive and redeem anybody. Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.16, but this is precisely, he's saying to his young mentee, why I received mercy. So that in me, as the number one sinner, Yeshua the Messiah might demonstrate how very patient he is as an example to those who would later come to trust in him and thereby have eternal life. Believers don't save anybody. It's God who saves. Paul writes Romans 9, 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And so the truth of faith in Yeshua does not depend on believers. The validity of a claim is not negated simply because the person making the claim is flawed. My friends, here's the point. If Hitler told you that 2 plus 2 equals 4, it would still be true. Abraham was a liar. Jacob, Yaakov was a thief. Noah was a drunk. Moses was a murderer. Rahab was a prostitute. David was an adulterer. Peter or Kepha had a big mouth. Paul was a murderer, yet God still used these people for his glory. If anything, the flaws of believers prove the truth of Yeshua faith rather than disproving it. Final objection you'll hear out there. And April, if you come forward, if you could. Well, your Yeshua faith, your faith in Yeshua is just a crutch. Many people... I've argued over the years that Yeshua faith may be nice. But it's really, you know, it's just really a crutch for weak people who cannot face the reality of their own mortality. Karl Marx famously said, quote, religion is what? The opiate of the masses. He further argued that, quote, the abolition of religion as the illusory happiness is required for their real happiness response crutches are for weak people and everyone is weak all people are weak all people are sinful all people are broken everyone seeks out a crutch whether that's alcohol whether that's drugs whether it's gambling money sex whatever it is the question isn't whether or not we have a crutch but how strong our crutch is 
Paul said, and he said to me, the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast in my infirmities that the power of Messiah may rest on me. Those in the world who claim that they don't need a crutch are the ones who are truly deceived. You say that I am rich, Yeshua said, Revelation 3:17, have become wealthy and have need of nothing. That's our world saying that. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. If you'd stand with me today, Yeshua came to save the weak. When Yeshua saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, you remember this in John 5, do you want to be made well? Yeshua came to save the weak. I don't think you mentioned that, Earl, about the guy that got healed at the conference. Well, I don't, all I know is the guy's foot was like turned to the side for years and years. He came with crutches and his whole thing. And by the end of the conference, he threw all that stuff aside. His foot was back normal, straight. Praise the Lord. Yeshua came to save the weak. For when we were still without strength in due time, Messiah died for the ungodly. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Hebrews 12, Mark 2. When Yeshua heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. My friends, everyone is weak, so everyone needs a crutch. The fact that Yeshua faith is a crutch proves the power of God. So that's a little bit of apologia, reasoned answers, because you'll encounter one or more of those if you haven't already. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Father, I thank you that you've given us a better mind, a renewed mind, and we are to use it. We don't turn off our brains when we come to the Messiah, Yeshua. We have a better mind. Transform our minds, Lord. Father, we want to think of things that are of loveliness, goodness, and of a good report. Lord, the world's trying to shove down our throat and our minds, evil reports. And we can get really super discouraged if that's all we focus on. If it's all that we focus on. Lord, we choose this day to think on a good report. We choose to look at our neighbor the way that you look at them. The potential you have. Sure, they're weak. We're weak. But you've given us a free moral choice that we would make to have the best crutch that we've ever had in our lives. One that has no negative hangover side effects or anything. But so a life in this life, true life. Thank you for this crutch, Yeshua, in our lives. We can't do it without him. We don't want to do it without him. So, Father, I thank you for this conference that we had last weekend. For the healings done. For the healings done. Lord, there were so many of us had so many conversations with so many hungry people. They had been hungry in their spirits and they got fed. I thank you for that. I thank you for Earl. I thank you for John. I thank you for Robert Wolf, who put not only their time and labor but their shekels into this conference of their own money. For a greater glory that San Diego would know, that the First Nations would know 
that the Hispanic community would know, that the African-American community would know, that the Asian community would know that we are all one together in the olive tree. We thank you, God. Give them open doors as we've heard today in Los Angeles and, and in these tribal nations, Lord. Lord, we know that this one particular tribe, 50 of their chiefs perished during COVID because of COVID. And there are very few believers. And so, Father, open up doors of blessing that we'll be able to go in and proclaim the good news of Yeshua to these people. And for our Jewish people that have these objections, Lord, I ask that they would come in a spirit of humility to really think through deeply these matters. We bless you out of Zion today. We thank you for all that are here this morning, those who are listening on the podcast or on YouTube or on Facebook. Lord, we are getting equipped by your spirit because we believe all Israel shall be saved. So, Lord, we just do want to end today. We want to pray for the nation of Israel. Apparently, there was a strike at the Syrian airport. The Israelis took action. I'm not sure what has happened. It just happened today. Lord, we ask you that he who keeps Israel would neither slumber nor sleep, that, Lord, no weapon formed against Israel would prosper in these days. We pray for our nation, Lord, as we know that there are some decisions coming which are going to upset a good portion of Americans. We stand strong on biblical morality. We stand strong. We're pro-life. We stand strong on the word of God. And so, Father, we ask you to continue to put that hedge of protection around this building, around us, in our lives. That we would have open doors to share when these issues come forward. Center stage. Father, I was watching a documentary this week that in 1968 through 1972... I believe it was called the Jane Project. 11,000 abortions in the south side of Chicago took place three times a week prior to Roe v. Wade being enacted. And the arrogance of these women today, 50 years later, God, we ask you to rain down a spirit of life in this nation. That no more baby, we ask you, Lord, that California would not be this abortion sanctuary that it's setting up to be. We come against the spirit of death in the name of Yeshua right now. We ask you, Lord, for protection over these Supreme Court justices, as we've heard of death threats that have happened even this week. Put a hedge of protection around Amy Coney Barrett and her children and her church, Justice Kavanaugh and others as well. Lord, the, the earth is angry. Satan is angry because he knows his time is short. So I thank you, Lord, that we can be salt and light in our city. Lord, there are going to people that are going to come in here and have come in here that are broken, that are strung out on drugs, that are angry, whatever. We need to be that place of refuge, pointing them to Yeshua who can save them and substitute out that crutch of addiction for a crutch of salvation. So God, give us that compassion for the world around us in these days. And so Moses told Aaron how to bless the sons and daughters of Israel as he went. These are God's words over the people that have been there for thousands of years. Receive it from God today. Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you shalom. In the name of Sar Shalom, the Prince of all peace, Yeshua of Nazareth. All of us who are with him said, Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture.